Welcome to Career in Ruins, where this week it's Christmas again. Again! It's come around quickly this year, hasn't it? Hasn't it just? It feels like only last year that we were sat inside a booth drinking tins of gin and tonic, because it was only last year. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny, we were lucky enough earlier today to chat to one of our our friends on the C Word podcast, and I remember that this time last year we were sending podcast Christmas Yeah, do you know what, I'm gutted we haven't done that this year, but shout out to Jenny and the crew at the C Word podcast. It was lovely to see her in the conference today, wasn't it? Yeah, it was excellent. Really nice to put a put a face to the voice as well. No, we'll, we'll, we'll cover that that in a bit more a bit more context in a second. But um, what, what have we got on this week's podcast, Derek? Oh, we've got a really nice podcast today. We've got a special guest joining us, Sadie Watson, who is the UKRI Future Leaders Fellow based at MOLA. And I'm glad I got through that in one mouthful. <laughs> um, so we'll be we'll be catching up with Sadie about her career um, and running through the usual questions. Um, before that, we'll be chatting through um, some things that have caught our eye this week, but just a nice casual pre-Christmas podcast, really. Oh, it's, we should say it's Thursday, the 17th of December. Um, Sounds about right. Everyone on the podcast today, in theory, I should say, we've had discussion already, but uh, finishes work tomorrow. Um, and uh, there's a um, there's a nice run-in now, a, a bit of a feel of festivity, even though there's a funny old lockdown ahead. I say, have you got anything fun planned for the few days leading up to Christmas, Lawrence? Uh, well, my anger, I, 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 I feels like the last few podcasts have been us talking about our ailments. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I managed to uh, sprain my ankle and it's just about back and running. So um, I'm going to go out on my mountain bike as much as possible. What about yourself? Nice. I like that you tell me that as if it's news to me and I wasn't stood behind you when it went in a weird direction a few weeks ago. <laughs> yeah. But it's good to see you'll be back out and about. I think I'm going to do similar things. We've we've got the puppy, obviously, so I'll do some do some good dog walking. And just oh, just a few days with the kids, it'll be just so nice. Not having to oh. get up and go straight to the room next to my bedroom that has a computer in it, but go downstairs, have some coffee and lounge around a bit. It just yes. sounds like bliss. Yes, very much so. <laughs> Very much so. Um, so I guess we should welcome Sadie. Sadie, welcome to Career in Ruins. How are you doing? Thank you very much for having me. It's, it's great to have you here. Um, so, um, we'll, we'll move on to the, the podcast proper in, in a bit, but um, I don't know if you've heard a few of the episodes previously, but we tend to have a bit of a ramble about things that have caught our attention in the last week or so. And I wonder, Derek, if you'd like to kick us off. Yeah, I mean, what's caught my attention, quite surprisingly, is podcasts. <laughs> no, sounds rubbish. No, bear with me on this. No, we had a really interesting afternoon today where we were both participants in the, let me see if I can get this out in a mouthful, computational applications and something, something in archaeology conference. Quant, quant, oh, I can't even say. You're the chair, aren't you, Lawrence? <laughs> computational applications in archaeology and quantitative methods. I think mine is the uh, the official term. UK chapter. Yeah, and it was it was that, a really yeah. enjoyable day. Some some amazing, incredible papers, and it was topped off with a session on podcasting. And what really struck me in that session was the 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 sort of similarities between being a podcast creator, as I guess we are, and being a lecturer talking on Zoom and you kind of, you say all this stuff out loud, you're talking out loud, we're talking out loud now, and yet we don't know who's listening. And a question from the audience came up, basically asking, do you know who your audience is? And it struck me that as as Christmas is coming, as it's, as it's drawing near to the end of the year, and hopefully people will have a bit more time to spend on Twitter, that maybe some of our regular listeners might want to give us a little shout out and say a little hello. Yeah. Because I'd love to know who's 
who, if anyone, is out there. And Are we shouting and, to avoid, hello, 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 hello. hello. <laughs> I mean, we do know, we did get the breaking news this week that we are now officially the 198th most popular culture-based podcast in New Zealand. Oh, I mean, that's which is kind really of big a big news. deal. <laughs> so, so someone, at least one person in New Zealand is listening. So if you're out there, please drop us a tweet, drop us a message. Thanks, Andy Brown and Josie Hagen. <laughs> <laughs> but no, it, it just, just got me thinking about who's who's out there. And uh, we we know we get some listeners. We get we, the number bar pops up in our Podbean account. But it would, yeah, be lovely to, to know who you are. So drop us a line, say hello and, and get in touch. Yeah. How about you, dude? What's been on your mind? Um, I, I've been getting angry. Um, not not about podcast sessions. Obviously, um, the, the, the CAA conference was brilliant. And it was great to see um, to see our colleagues from other um, podcast networks. So, so Tristan from the Archaeology Podcast Network and Jenny from the C Word again. And I should say she came out with the best line today, um, which is perfectly describes of how this podcast came to be. She's like, generally, I think podcast happens is when people come together and just go, should we start a band? <laughs> like, yeah, that, 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 that's how it's it is. To it be. is the 21st century of should we start a band? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was good. But no, um, so outside of podcast world, I've been getting angry about Henry Cole's Great British Treasure Hunt. That sounds like a very tedious rip-off of the Great British Bake Off. Tell me more, Lawrence. <laughs> well, I mean, no, don't don't class these things in the same category, Derek, because I <laughs> like the Great British Bake Off, and this programme is a travesty. So, first of all, it's Channel 5, so, um, I mean, we're setting a standard there hey, in its own hey, right. Channel 5 broadcast neighbours. I won't hear a bad <laughs> word about it, but carry on. <laughs> but this is a, um, a new TV programme whereby... Teams of metal detectorists are shipped out, carted out to um, grade what would appear to be at least grade two star, if not grade one listed buildings or scheduled monuments. And they're given just 72 hours, a.k.a. three days, where have you heard that before, to discover the best treasure they can in their team. And it's just horrendous. The, the precedent it's setting, the the sort of um, irresponsibility of this program is is just awful. And as as um, the sort of historic environment advisor for England's largest land managing organisation, Forestry England, it petrifies me to think that the precedent this program setting that there's treasure out there to be found that you can go to known archaeological sites with a metal detector and find treasure and there's there's a prize for goodness sake for the best team that find the best treasure and it's just just horrendous now I can I can feel your tingling rage there, but I should should point out to our regular listeners that vast majority of metal detectorists in the UK are incredibly responsible, very careful, declare their fines, and do work in places where they have good agreements and they know they'll be avoiding scheduled mm. areas and such. So this program in particular is almost driving it back two or three decades, isn't it? It's pushing it in the wrong direction. Yeah, no, I'm not having a go at established metal detectorists. So I think what concerns me about this is that there are non-metal detectorists that will see this program go out and buy a metal detector with the concept that there's treasure to be found everywhere and it's the easy way to win your big bucks or, or get a headline and they aren't being directed or or supported and aided by a local metal detecting club that are responsible by even by a, a responsible established metal detectorists and they're not aware of the rules the regulations around treasure around scheduled monuments around listed buildings around land access and permissions um and it, it, it's just a very, very scary programme, I think. Mm, I guess regardless of the heritage issues, they could easily be setting people up to get into a lot of trouble. Yeah, um, exactly that. But also the, this, this, the idea that archaeology is 
once you excavate a site, I mean, we all know this, once you dig it, you can't put things back as how they're found. So if there's people out there digging holes all over the place, digging up a previously unknown uh, burial mound or something like that, digging holes all over it, finding attributed deposits or even original deposits, um, those things are being pulled out of context and removed from that stratigraphic record. And they won't be aware of the impact they're having because they're just seeing this amazing program that's like, you guys are going to get a prize for finding the best treasure. It's just so irresponsible. And I just found a little blog that was done on the pipeline and I just saw my blood boiling more and more. <laughs> now, Sadie, I know you've you've got a huge long background in, in archaeology and frontline archaeology. What what do you make of all this? Well, I mean, firstly, I agree absolutely with what Lawrence said about the danger of encouraging people to detect and dig random holes on treasure monuments and other Important and uh, and unknown sites, actually. Let's face it, nobody should be digging mm. holes randomly anywhere. Um, and I, I do think that there should be licensing as a minimum for metal detectorists in this country. Mm. But in London, of course, we work in the waterfront along the Thames and we use mudlarks um, who are experts a lot to metal detect our spoil because we can't, we haven't got the time to go through every single shovel load, obviously, as we're, we're hoofing it out really quickly. And we've worked with an amazing metal detectorist um, who who not only on the Bloomberg excavations, which is the biggest Roman excavation ever in the city, record-breaking, et cetera, he found 70% of the metal finds mm. out of the 15,000. Mm. So that's a big number already. And as well as that, he also found, which is really amazing, lots of non-metal finds because he was so wow. busy looking with his eyes, not even using the metal detector, <laughs> that, that a significant percentage of the Roman writing tablets, which are made of wood, he, have also, he also found for us because they were disguised let's face it in, in big lumps of of you know uh, waterlogged organic deposits so so his contribution was um immeasurable well it is measurable but but in terms of the knowledge <laughs> that he contributed it, it's immeasurable really i'd echo that we've had some students in the past who've come on to do to study archaeology with a background in detecting and the they're such an asset to have on site because we we tend to remove the topsoil as you do on on large-scale excavations and to have someone spending the time and investing the time on it in, a, in what is, in terms of metal detectoring, the most safe and um, beneficial way in that it's instantly catalogued and recorded. And um, it's, yeah, it's been of tremendous value. And it's this idea of just kind of turning it into reality TV. It just makes, it, it makes, don't get me wrong, archaeology can be great reality TV. We've, we've seen that in the past. And I suspect, I, I, speaking for myself, I'm probably here because of archaeology being reality <laughs> TV in a way. Um, but it's taken it to that nth level, that kind of 2020 style of TV, which, oh, fingers crossed, it just isn't successful and goes mm. away. <laughs> hey, speaking of reality TV and archaeology, have you seen that Time Team are back doing a um, Patreon account? They seem to have had fantastic luck on that. I've been keeping an eye on the numbers. They've got a fair amount mm. of supporters there. It's no surprise, really. Yeah, certainly worth keeping an eye on. I think it, uh, there could be things brewing there. Mm, it'll be interesting. Watch for space, mm. I think. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, so that's my rant and waffle over. Sadie, what's caught your attention this week? It may be a bit um, sector specific, but I wonder if you saw the document published by the Society for Antiquities this week about their manifesto for the future for archaeology in the UK. No, I missed that. Tell us more. <laughs> well, I will I will tell you more, I, although I, it's quite a short document, so don't be worried. You don't have to read 80 pages or anything. No. <laughs> it's the result of a, um, a collaboration or consultation that they did about a year ago, apparently, with other sector groups like Chartered Institute for Archaeologists, our professional body, 
um, and Algeo, the curatorial team, um, representative body rather. I'm not quite sure how it ended up being published so quickly and rapidly by the society, to be honest. There seems to be some hoo-ha over the details. <laughs> but it's an interesting, there's an interesting series of proposals in there, which has certainly stirred up some conversation online. So it's been, it's been good to, um, to raise the profile and raise concerns that we all have about particularly the curatorial sector um, and the future of that. Of you, okay. in fact, Lawrence. <laughs> Tell me more. <laughs> Do I want to know more? <laughs> where can I? Where can I find this document? Uh, is there anything that particularly stuck out for you? Well, it doesn't necessarily apply to the National Parks archaeologists, actually. But but they have an idea to have regional hubs, wherein you would house um, the the curators, so the the county archaeologists who who look after all the planning led archaeology, and you would also have a research hub in in that place, wherever the place might be. So you would have academics and people like me from development-led sector contributing to um, local research frameworks. And and one of the other main focuses for the document actually is um, increased public benefit from archaeology, which of course is an interest of mine. Mm -hmm. So that's why I, I thought it was um, lots of things that are difficult in it perhaps or challenging, but lots of things that are also interesting and worth talking about further. Wow, that does sound really cool, actually. I'll certainly be going to, to, to look that up. That does sound very, very interesting. Yeah, something to digest and maybe chat about in future episodes. Yeah, yeah. Oh, thanks. Good, good spot. Good spot. All right, that's really interesting. So, without further ado, I think, should we move on to our interview of the day? Yes. Should we yeah, get yeah. into the meat of it? Excellent. More. So, let's welcome properly Dr. Sadie Watson of MOLA, who is the UKRI Future Leaders Fellow and is investigating or exploring, measuring, maximising and transforming public benefit from UK government infrastructure investment in archaeology. Which sounds really interesting. Sounds very good. Sadie, <laughs> how, do you get to, how do you get to there? How did that happen? Well, that's a very good question. Um, how I got to be a fellow is two things, really. Two, two perfect things collided. I, I did a PhD a few years ago while I was working and I, I always, I did it for my own benefit largely, really. I just thought I quite fancy being Dr. Watson and that's understandable, I presume. <laughs> Excellent. Because I have been Dr. Watson my entire life, so I may as well actually have earned the title for once. Um, so that happened. And then, but my PhD focused a lot on, on what we do and why we do it. So methodology, knowledge creation, whether mm. what I've done in my professional career has actually been used or had any impact on anybody beyond myself, which was quite an interesting process to go through and to think about, obviously. And then at the same time as that, MOLA, who are a large, as you know, an archaeological heritage practice based in London and Northampton, but, but work everywhere, they achieved independent research organisation status, which means that they can apply for research funds in the same way that our university departments can. And there are quite a few other IROs in our sector, British Museum, Historic England, National Trust, I think is one as well. So anyway, because we are an IRO now, I, I had an opportunity to apply for this um, fellowship. And the opportunity, I spotted it on a, on a job site. And I thought, well, that sounds interesting. Four years, um, pretty much fully funded to look at something that will have impact on your sector. And my sector, I felt as a person who's been embedded in it for so long, could do with um, some things changing, not all the things, but some things could be done better. And one of the things that I think we could do better is providing this fabled thing called public benefit, which I, I think mm. is includes knowledge and, and understanding and all those traditional interpretations of archaeology, but also includes other things as well. So that's 
That's what I'm looking at. And I've got two fantastic research associates working with me now, and there'll be a third one joining in about a year. Um, and between us, we're going to to think about it and write about it and ask people what they think, really. That sounds incredible. <laughs> that sounds so cool. Um, so, so how did you get to that? What's been your career trajectory to get to there? Um, again, really field-based. I mean, I, I am a Bournemouth graduate, hey. um, probably many years before you, so let's not, we don't go there, but I'm a Bournemouth graduate. And upon graduation, I immediately started um, field work. It, I was quite lucky that there was quite a lot of work going on at the time, particularly in the West Country where I'm from, and then up towards sort of Cotswolds and Oxford. And I ended up working, being based in Oxford for the Oxford Archaeological Unit that was Oxford Archaeology now. And then I came to London in 1998. So um, my entire career really has been um, in the development-led sector. I've done very little research excavation uh, and and I've gradually become, you know, a project officer working on, on big urban sites in the city. So, but, but at the same time, of course, I was thinking about what we were doing and I did my master's distance learning and then, and then my PhD, as I said. So my sort of academic interest in what we were doing was developing as well. And that's perfect collision with this, with this project, really, because when I went for the interview and when I got the fellowship, the feedback that I got was that they were really keen to give money to practitioners. And that's what I am. I'm not an academic sitting in a university department. Not that there's anything wrong with those people, of course, but they thought it might be interesting to, you know, to mix it up a bit, I guess, and see how somebody who's, who's so embedded in the sector might think about it. That's awesome. So there's a couple of things that I'd be interested to pick up on, on just on a few threads that you've mentioned so far. So the first was, how did you find doing a part-time master's, part-time PhD whilst whilst working? Because as someone that's doing it myself, I'm, I'm, I'm finding it quite challenging. And we're always keen to give listeners this idea of everyone's career trajectory is very different. And we've had people that have done degree, master's, PhD. We have people that have done degree, very long break, then PhD, and some people haven't even done PhD. But I think you're the first person, might be wrong here, but the first person we've spoken to that's done this part-time PhD, part-time studies whilst working full-time as well. How was that? Yeah, I mean, I should come clean and say that it wasn't entirely deliberate. I I was hoping to do a, a master's after my degree, but I didn't quite get the required grade, let's put it that way, on my undergrad. So I, that's why I went into fieldwork and did something else instead. And the distance learning MA that I did was from was through Leicester at the weekends and in the evenings. Mm -hmm. I worked full time. It wasn't even really a part time one. Mm. But because it was a subject that I was familiar with and it didn't involve, it wasn't a science master's, for example, um, it perhaps wasn't as difficult as it or challenging as, as it would have been otherwise. I did it over two years and, and it wasn't, it, it was, it, obviously it's quite grim working in the evenings when you just want to, you know, you've been working on site all day. But of course, self-funding is, is another motivating factor, which makes you carry on. And I self-funded my MA. Um, and then years later, the PhD opportunity was an amazing one because it was applied archaeology. So it was, it was like an old um, PhD by publication. And I did it through Lampeter. Bizarrely, which is quite a commute for my annual reviews from London to West Wales, but it was it was fantastic to go to Lampeter and you know and be there for my PhD and and come back to London and be at work, and and that applied archaeology PhD allows you to submit seventy percent of your content, so seventy thousand words from your professional output. So I submitted a molar monograph that had my that I was a sole author for, and a couple of three other articles, and then the the PhD aspect of it. It was me critiquing my contribution to learning from all my molar output. So mm. it 
I have called it a cheats PhD. I don't think it was because I think I earned it, but I didn't slog over 100,000 words as you probably are doing. So it is slightly different, actually. I think that's awesome because that, that's immediately such a different take on what a PhD in inverted commas is. And hopefully there'll be people out there that will hear that and go, huh, you, you can do that? And it's certainly not a cheats PhD. There's a hell of a lot of work that's gone into that. But also... Um, I'm sure there are people out there that are doing similar levels of work that, that, that could take that next step to push it into that similar level of publication and qualification as you've done. So that, that's a really nice sort of seed of thought, hopefully, that you, mm. you might have planted there. I'd absolutely agree. I mean, I love the fact that the PhD as a banner has alternative tracks because it gives it gives recognition to the contribution to a discipline from many facets and to to see people doing that and going on and having strong research careers that span the professional practice you do and the research element of the company you work within is fantastic and it's it's nice to see the discipline going that way and having those elements and I for one would like to see a lot more of it yeah that is super cool uh, the other thing I just and this might be a difficult question so um feel free to say you're not interested but, um <laughs> I just wondered based on your work now within the position you're in and and your research now what are the themes and the ideas you're coming up with in terms of the public benefit within archaeology that's that's a really good question and obviously it's developing and at the moment we're just rapidly which is why I'm working next week a bit rapidly trying to finish the literature review which is looking at how archaeologists think about public benefit and, and what we currently um, convince ourselves we are doing to enhance public benefit and as I said it's it's largely framed as knowledge creation or increasing understanding which of course is key but the impact of that is is rarely measured or evaluated beyond the academic sector where you have ref and um, frameworks for recording research impact and things. We don't really do that in my part of the sector. So we write a nice big fat book and the only people that might read it um, are the people sitting next to you in the office or or your mum, maybe. Um, anyway, so that's that's the first thing. So we're, we're thinking about also how other sectors that we work with or alongside might think about public benefit. And the construction sector are way ahead of us on all this stuff, um, particularly housing, particularly social infrastructure projects. So they have their benefits assessed at the beginning of a project and all the way through the project, they're aiming for those things. So there's no reason why archaeology can't contribute to those from a much earlier stage. So the, the, the thoughts are developing now that I think that we should be able to embed, is the wrong word, but um, sort of enhance sections of our stages of our process. So on a standard development project, you'd have a desk space assessment at the beginning where you'd look at the, the archaeology around the edge and what you're expecting on the site, that kind of thing. And there's no reason why at that stage you couldn't have some local consultation with the community as to what they, they wanted to know on the site, for example. It may not be the same questions that we want to ask, but it's interesting to think that the intangible heritage can be extended into development-led archaeology, and it's currently not done that often. Mm -hmm. um, and, and then going basically right the way through to dissemination and publication, of course, at every stage. And I'd the focus needn't ever be on excavation. There's a there's a common misconception that public benefit means public engagement and that we have to invite, you know, people are invited on to watch us work. And that's not really what I'm getting at, although that is a valuable thing to do, of course. Um, I'm getting more at um, archaeology as a process involves many things as well as excavation. And that's the bit that we can get some benefit from, I think. That's really interesting. And it, it, it reminds me of years, years ago. It must have been early PhD days, I went to one of the EAA conferences and there was a session on the, on the Faro Convention, which is a, a European convention on 
culture things, which I can't remember the full title of because I haven't Googled it quick enough. <laughs> but there was a line in there that stuck with me back in the day. And it kind of, it, it was what pushed me when I was sort of starting out to do more community work. It's, everyone has the right to benefit from the cultural heritage and to contribute towards its enrichment. And it's so wonderful to see that being embedded in in practice in, in a commercial company. It's all well and good to have people in stripy jumpers in universities waxing lyrical about, oh, everyone's got the right to participate in cultural heritage, but to actually see it in an industrial or a commercial context is is where the folks who were waxing lyrical at that conference wanted to get to. So it's it's really nice to see. Um, but in in all of that, so in, in, in your career and to where you are now, is there an element or a component of it that you're kind of particularly proud of or you you kind of think that's the thing that when someone asks me what's the what's the best thing you've ever done that you you tell them yeah I mean obviously that that depends on who's asking the question because quite often <laughs> the best thing you've ever done will be oh, I, I found this amazing thing um the best thing I've ever done is and you'll both know this is is work as part of brilliant teams you know that's that's what archaeology mm. is all about it's such a team game mm. uh, in every aspect but particularly in field work there's this sort of sense of um of a little microcosm developing in a site cabin or a site hut. And that, that happens mm. in cities as well as in fields, actually. You get this, exactly the same um, vibe, if that's the right word. And because of that, I remember um, particular excavations really clearly, really vividly and really fondly as well, particularly um, the Bloomberg one, which was fantastic, big team, really, really stressful, but nevertheless hugely rewarding because of the challenges that we were faced with every day that we managed to get through. Um, and we had a brilliant project manager as well, which was a key to its success. But then another one, my sort of last big one that I did before I, I became this, um, took this fellowship post up was was on the waterfront. And it was a Roman and medieval multi-phase site. And again, there were lots of little typical PPG 16 development led project, lots of tiny holes we were supposed to dig. And on pretty much the first day, I think the consultant sat down with with my project manager and, and the guy on site and said, Look, why don't we just make it one big hole? And so eventually, you know, it, it was just a, literally a conversation in the cabin and, and they all said, yeah, OK, mm. we'll do that. So in the end, we ended up with, you know, 30 metres long of the Roman waterfront, the Box Key, which is a unique structure for the city. Mm. And it was um, a spectacular thing to look at and spectacular thing for the team to work on. And, and a couple of the, the women who were working on it spotted all the way along the timbers that it had these amazing stamps from from the timber yard from the early, you know, late first century, actually. So that was that's really exciting. Wow, it's funny, isn't it? The things like stamps and those little individual marks. I, I don't know about you, Lawrence, as well, but when when I cast my mind back to excavations or, or various things, the two things that tend to stick into my head are the team, as you said, and those those little personal touches, the the thumbprint in the lining of a Roman kiln or the, yeah, the, the child's fingerprint in the pinch pot, the, the things that connect you to a person and, mm. and tile stamps or stamps on woodwork or on waterfronts are those those very human elements. I, I love it. Yeah, absolutely. I, it's super cool to meet someone that's dug on the Bloomberg because like, we were there last oh, November. Yeah. We went along with the CBA. Oh, um, we had a lovely day. Meeting that was taking place. And that, I, th I forget the project manager now. She, we met the project um, manager. Sophie Jackson, um, hopefully. Sophie yeah. Jackson. Yeah. Yeah. She was so we, we had a chat with Sophie and um, just in, and what they've done in terms of the mm. experiential experience. Oh. and Yeah, just, just epic. So very, very cool. Well, of course, the legend has it that Mithras was born on 25th of December, of course, as well. So. Mm. 
<laughs> and I think, I think, I think, oddly, it was Professor Grimes's birthday as well. But I might have made that up. It all, it all becomes one big legend in my head, of course. Now, <laughs> nice. Well, that's a really nice example of work that you've been proud of being involved in. But I wonder if there's a bit of work that you've seen that you've been envious of, in that you would love to have been involved, or you thought, oh, imagine having found that. Yeah, I mean, there are. Is it, does it have to be a, a recent one, or can it be an? Can be anything. No, anything. no, no. Okay, well, this, that's lucky because mine is going to be quite an old one. I, I, um, I grew up in Dorset, and I, I grew up in the, you know, I'm a Hillfort girl at heart, really. <laughs> Despite the fact that I've become a, a Roman London uh, person since, and I would have loved to have dug Maiden Castle with Mortimer Wheeler. I think that would have been. Oh. I mean, I know that a lot of his his conclusions have been rightfully rubbished by Mars Russell and and team <laughs> since, but um, I think that that kind of iconic site really would be amazing to work on. So that's a big Iron Age hill fort, isn't it? Just on the outskirts of Dorchester? Yes. It's got quite a long time period attached to it, hasn't it? There's Neolithic... Um, is it, well, I, wanna, I don't know what the... Um, Causewayed enclosure, one, yeah, the technical yeah. term. <laughs> and then, then you've got the Iron Age. You saved me. <laughs> and then uh, there's even a little Roman shrine on the top of it. Is that right? Mm. And then uh, I forget what the, what the history is in terms of the... the you, you mentioned that Miles has disproved something that... Uh, was that around the idea of conflict? Yes, it was. And they thought that the, the bodies, that the skeletons that Wheeler's team found were the result of um, Roman um, violence, you know, conquest and murder. And it turns out that actually they were pre-Roman in date and it was inter, I, I don't need to want to use the word inter-tribal, inter-village, inter-communal mm. um, battles in, in the pre-Roman period. Oh, that... Even calling it pre-Roman is, is unfair on the Iron Age, isn't <laughs> it really? It's all, it's all framed in the Roman kind of... Um, relationship and that's not really right. Pre-civilization. <laughs> <laughs> Take it up a notch. <laughs> <laughs> what do they ever do for us? <laughs> that's a lovely site. And I, I remember being there as an undergrad and just standing in the ditches that are probably what mm. three it, to the top of the ramparts, three four times the height of of yourself. I don't think I'm over exaggerating there. I think you're under underplaying it. I think to be honest, mm. it's 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 a site, and I've probably ranted about it on the podcast before, but certainly in lectures that. If you think about when you stand in one of those in in one of the ditches next to the ramparts and you think about the scale of endeavour that went into building that site and you compare it to dragging a few stones around and making a stone circle, isn't it's building Maiden <laughs> Castle was it's, as in terms of prehistory, I think is one of the the grandest most large scale signs of communal human endeavour you can imagine dragging a stone is nothing compared to digging one of those ramparts what I love about Maiden Castle <laughs> is that we've asked this question I, I, this has got to be nearly our 20th episode or at least not, well, knocking pushing on 30, 30 I think okay. um, it shows how much I pay attention <laughs> and um, so in 30 episodes Maiden Castle <laughs> has been mentioned three times um, of people that or, 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 as a site of significance and particularly when we play things like Monutrumps when you're meant to identify a site far more impressive than Stonehenge I think this is sort of <laughs> highlighting the Monutrumps value of, of Maiden Castle not least because it was your Domutrumps selection the Dominic, Dominic Cummings special of where you would drive to Derek it was wasn't it yeah because yeah. it's a castle and you'd need good eyesight yeah and there's bluebells <laughs> somewhere <laughs> no, no, no. That, that's a um, that's a fantastic addition to to, to the MV question so um, we're, we're sort of rounding off towards the end of the, the podcast now and uh, our, our final question that we like to ask participants is that Derek and I have got a working 
patented um, time machine and all participants in the podcast get a free return ticket. This thing moves both in space and time. So uh, you can go anywhere in the world and at any point and you can probably run over multiple phases if that helps in any any shape or form. But all we need to know is where you'd like to go and what you'd like to see. This is such a hard one, isn't it? This is like an undergrad bar question um, <laughs> and this unanswerable, <laughs> unanswerable. So I thought long and hard about it and there's obvious ones. I mean, I'd like to go to everything, mm. every time, everywhere, basically. But if, if, I, if I chose one because I'm an archaeologist, field archaeologist, I'd go back to 1956 around Professor Grimes and Audrey Williams, more importantly, um, were excavating the Mithraeum mm. in the City of London in this horrendous post-war rubble um, and deprivation and, and everything that we know happens after wars. It was really, it, everyone was really struggling. And it sort of, in a way, it, it kind of rose from these ashes of this rubble on, on the site in the city. And we did an oral history project about it. And the people who went there felt the magic from that site when they saw it being uncovered. And that, that I think, is something that... Um, that I would have liked to witness, not necessarily experience as one of the people there, but I'd, I'd love to go and, and see that being uncovered. It's not very long ago, I realise. No, that's a really mm. nice one. And I, there's yeah. loads of talking points there, not not least the, the excavation. Am I right? I could be wrong here. I'm thinking the excavation nearly finished, but someone found mm. the bust um, the day before it was due due to finish. Is that, is that yeah, right? Yeah, well, yes. And um, the Sunday Times or I think whichever paper had had the picture of the workman on site, one of the, you know, the concrete pourers or something on site holding up this bust of Mithras. Whether it was actually him that found it or not, people have people have argued about that. But, <laughs> but we all know that um, labourers mm. often find the best things on site. So I, I'm willing to believe that it was definitely him. <laughs> and wow. because it was such a magic site and, and such an amazing find, um, and temples obviously are particularly interesting sites anyway for various reasons. And because of, as I said, this post-war um, trauma that we were recovering from, there was a huge public um, and political furore about the site. And Winston Churchill was called back from Chequers to answer questions in Parliament. And there's, there's only very few sites now that would raise that kind of political storm. Obviously, you've mentioned the stones in Wiltshire. And it's really on a level, um, if you think back in the 1950s, because we didn't have any legal protection for archaeology. So it literally was going to be bulldozed away. That's a really nice selection. And you mentioned there were some oral histories mm. that were done as part of that project. Did you get a feel for what, what the visitors, because there were queues hundreds of metres long to sort of peer their head over and see what was being discovered. Mm. What, what was the general vibe? from those oral histories. Yeah, it was amazing. Um, Bloomberg invited them all to um, to afternoon tea and, and their stories were amazing. There was a woman there who was called Mitra after Mithras because her mum was pregnant when she visited the temple in 1956. There was a, a woman there who was um, in her mid-60s who, who remembered it as a little girl and she remembered physically her memory was of her hand holding her dad's hand above her head. All this kind of really weird sort of... Um, muscle memory or, or psychological memory, I guess, that, that, that they have of actually seeing this thing in, in the ground. And, and I've talked before about the, the magic that they felt and the importance of it. And because London was so struggling, and my dad was in London at the time, and he remembers all the bomb sites and the rubble and, and how grey everything was, that something actually positive and interesting mm. was, was appearing, which was a really, really positive thing. It's, it's an incredibly strong example of archaeology being for the public good, isn't it? Mm. It's 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 there in in black and white photos. It's there in in the colourful memories of, of the people who who experienced it. And it's it's 
it's very nice to have someone use the time machine to go back and see an archaeological discovery rather than go back and see what was going on in the temple but i think because because you've done such an interesting visit i'm going to break all of lawrence's rules here and say maybe we'll give you a, a ticket to visit that site at any point in history That'd be amazing. You'd like again Thank and you. again so you can see it in action and see it discovered i i think i can get on board with this idea <laughs> <laughs> no i think that's something to be honest when we were stood in there i i remember thinking if i was ever allowed to use our own time machine this is this is one of the places i'd want to see just to experience the, the din and the, the smell of the incense and the, just being in that space mm. and then possibly pop over to Greece or Italy and, and try out a, a different version and see how they are yeah. across the world. A warmer version. <laughs> <laughs> Derek, your discussion seems to suggest we don't use our time machine all the time. I mean, we've got a, we've got a working time machine. We need to, <laughs> or at least we need to make people think we have a working time machine. <laughs> hey, I thought, I thought we were being frugal with it. <laughs> well, they wouldn't, they wouldn't let me in in the fourth century anyway, because I'm a woman. So that I would have been mm. standing outside waiting for you guys to come out. <laughs> no, no, we, 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 it's all invisible. We can just sneak in. It's fine. Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah. that's, that's yeah. good then. Harry Potter style cloak of invisibility. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To yeah, sneak yeah, into places. Yeah. <laughs> I don't have any, any of that nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> Sadie, thank you so much for your uh, your time this evening um, to, to share your career in ruins with us. I think um, it's a brilliant addition um, to to the series so far, and um, we're really grateful for your time. So thank you for that. Thank you very much for asking me. Honestly, it's been great. Oh, it's been brilliant. And we hope you and all our listeners have a fantastic Christmas and New Year mm -hmm. and a holiday break, whatever it is that you're doing in this time. And we'll be back in 2021 when hopefully things are a lot calmer and easier and clearer in the time going forwards. But uh, thank you, everyone that's listened and tuned in in 2020. And um, we hope to catch you all in 2021. <laughs>